Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two segments today. We'll hear from the political scientist Clyde Barrow and why the diverse, sophisticated state of Texas is run by a bunch of reactionary would-be cowboys. And then Anatole Levin will talk about U.S.-China conflicts and what happened in Afghanistan. Texas is a heavily urbanized state with a highly diverse population. It's home to three of the ten largest cities in the country, and a population that's just 41% non-Hispanic white, according to the official U.S. government taxonomy. But is run by a bunch of gun-toting, reactionary white guys who seem to be living in their fantasy of the 1890s. National pundits keep saying it's on the verge of voting Democratic, at least in national elections, but that never seems to happen. How is this political order maintained? To explore this question, here's Clyde Barrow. And yes, he's a distant relative of Bonnie's late sidekick. Barrow, a Texas native, is a professor of political science at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. He's the author of Towards a Critical Theory of States, and his latest book is The Dangerous Class, the concept of the lumpen proletariat published last year by the University of Michigan Press. Clyde Barrow. A lot of Yankees just uh, dismiss Texas as a, a backward almost comical place, but uh, that doesn't seem very fair at all. But let me start with uh, what um, I said to you in the email uh, in which I made your acquaintance. Texas is a very urbanized state. It has three of the ten largest cities in the country. It's very, got a very sophisticated, diverse population, yet it seems to be run by a bunch of cowboys who still think it's the Wild West. What's going on? What is the root of their power and how do they maintain it? Yeah, there are a lot of layers to this, and, and I'll start uh, really by going back to an old classic book in political science by V.O. Key, wrote a classic book entitled Southern Politics, and there's a great chapter in there on Texas, which begins to address exactly this question, which is, if you were to, to sort of just lay Texas alongside a place like California, New York, or Massachusetts, in terms of its demographics, it looks like those states. It's an industrial, now a post-industrial state, a lot of high technology, comparatively high levels of education, high degree of urbanization. In fact, something like 75% of the state's population lives inside of what we call the Golden Triangle, which is sort of a line from Dallas to San Antonio to Houston. Uh, it's a very diverse population. As you know, we're one of the few minority-majority states, predominantly Hispanic and Latino, but with large uh, populations of Asian Americans, African Americans, uh, Native Americans. And so the, the, the question that's always puzzled political scientists is, why doesn't Texas look more like New York politically? And in fact, in the 1940s and 50s, uh, V.O. Key in his book, Southern Politics, predicted that it would. Uh, there was a longstanding assumption that the legacy of the Civil War and race had been the key issue that dominant white elites had used to splinter and split the working class in Texas, which it has done and continues to do. But the view was that as it became more industrialized, uh, politics would shift from race to class, that you would have a genuinely liberal, progressive Democratic Party, and that uh, Texas politics would shift to the liberal side of the political spectrum, and it would become kind of a a modern political state. Texas did have that liberal tradition, the Texas Observer, Ralph Yarborough, but they seem like a distant memory now. What happened to them? Well, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, if I was to use a kind of a very crude Marxist analogy, I'd say that we have a contradiction between the political superstructure and the economic substructure. And, and you keep thinking at some point that rubber band is going to snap. One way to look at it is the cities are very liberal. Austin, Houston, Dallas, increasingly in Fort Worth, San Antonio, all these urban centers are very liberal and they vote liberal. And there are a lot of reasons why that doesn't translate into liberalism nationally. And if you give me two or three minutes here, uh, I'll give you both some contemporary and some historical analysis. Please do. You mentioned a very good point. Texas was critical to the emergence of a new deal in the 1930s, right up to the 1970s. In fact, it was often called the Boston-Austin axis because of the fact that, uh, you know, 
John Nance Garner was vice president. He was from Texas uh, under Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, most of the important committees that passed New Deal legislation were chaired by members of Congress from the state of Texas. Uh, and that was a relationship, as you point out, that went all the way up through the 1970s, uh, if not a lot longer. And actually, an interesting thing happened here. And, and there's a great book, William Norris Green, a historian, wrote a book called uh, The Establishment in Texas Politics. I think he makes a very compelling argument. And it goes something like this. As Texas politicians at the national level gravitated into the New Deal, there were a lot of the, the local elites in Texas, the landed elites, the oil barons, the banking and financial sector, grew very nervous about this. You know, these were people who were still anchored in a 19th century conception of free market capitalism, laissez-faire. They were religiously very conservative evangelicals, and they were terrified that Texas was, in fact, going to start to look more like New York or California politically. And so they devised uh, a strategy, and it, it's a coherent strategy that has really borne fruit here in the last five years or so. Part of that strategy was to construct a very specific local ideology that is known here as Texas patriotism, that Texas was the repository of the true America, the America of the rugged individualist, of laissez-faire capitalism, of limited government, where men and women each knew their place uh, in the family structure, where we worshiped God and, and praised Jesus. And that, the, that what they did was construct this notion of Texas patriotism, try to isolate Texas from the general flow of national politics. And they've been very effective in doing that. You know, you will never go to another state where people will have the loyalty and identity to their state to the degree that you will find in Texas. And of course, the whole culture is just permeated, infused with this stuff from you know, the Dallas Cowboys, the Houston Maverick, everything, these sort of mythical images of this Texas past of we are the guardians of the true America. This is always funny coming from a state that took up arms against the federal government. Absolutely. And, they, and that's their interpretation of the Civil War, is that we were defending the, the real original Constitution, the, the, the Constitution of state supremacy and states' rights. So a lot of this is anchored in that. In addition, uh, a lot of it was, if you take this relationship of, of the free market and God, which they draw a straight line between the two, you know, their argument is God created the universe. There are laws of nature created by God and the laws of economics and the free market are part of those laws. So you can't be a liberal without violating the will of God, quite literally. And they don't just view liberals as political opponents. They view them as, as godless atheists who are trying to undermine religious foundations of the state. And that's one of the ways they isolate them. But as part of that, of course, is the competition in the free market. That generates a very virulent, uh, vicious doctrine of social Darwinism, which easily lends itself to white supremacy, to racism, to sense of ethnic superiority, male dominance over women, uh, anti-immigration. And that's become the, the ideology of the Republican Party in this state. And I tell people all the time, if you want to read one of the scariest political documents you will ever read other than Mein Kampf, go online and look at the official platform of the Texas Republican Party. I mean, it literally comes right out and begins with the phrase affirming our belief in God and then goes on to make it clear that the Constitution statutes, laws are all subordinate to their understanding of religious doctrine, and it is quite literally the Taliban. It is a theocratic conception of politics in which they are justified in violating the Constitution, violating rulings of the Supreme Court, violating federal law, if they can rationalize that as being in line with defending God's will as they understand it. And I, I think people don't take that seriously enough. What you described sounds similar to uh, the rest of the South, although Texas's relation with the South is anomalous, I understand. But um, is there something unique about Texas compared to the, uh, the traditional Dixie? I think the unique component of it is, first, the sort of the aggressiveness and the conscientiousness with which the Texas elite has managed to establish this ideology and to promote it through the public schools. Keep in mind that not a single textbook can use, be used in a public school. 
in this state unless it is approved by the Texas Textbook Commission, which has long been controlled by people that we would regard as evangelical zealots. When I get my students in college and I start teaching Texas politics, they're flabbergasted. They're like, well, nobody ever told us this. <laughs> nobody ever mentioned this. They literally just sort of write things out of history. One of the simplest examples in the last iteration, they wrote Helen Keller out of the history textbooks. Well, she's a socialist, right? Because she's a socialist. And that was the reason. That was literally the reason. Another very important component to this, and you can't downplay the success with which they have demobilized the electorate. Texas, yes, it has. It's a minority majority state, but it is not a minority majority electorate. You know, there are deep historical reasons that go back to intimidation, Jim Crow laws, what we called Juan Crow laws, whites only primaries, which have habituated people to non-participation. But one of the places where they have been incredibly successful is with gerrymandering. If you were to look at a map of either the congressional districts or the state legislative districts in Texas, you will see some really bizarrely drawn districts. And it's because they can take a place, say, like in Austin, which should be overwhelmingly liberal. It is. But they draw a series sort of star-like districts which emanate out from the center of Austin and then incorporate these white Republican districts in the suburbs and exurbs. And they turn what would generate probably five or six uh, liberal state legislators and two or three liberal congressmen to reduce it to one, the inner core of Austin. And keep in mind, They've had super majorities in the legislature for 20 years. They can do whatever they want, particularly since, you know, we didn't renew the Voting Rights Act. So there's no federal supervision anymore. The Supreme Court has ruled that gerrymandering for political purposes is perfectly constitutional, even though its underlying purpose may be racial gerrymandering. If it's just for partisan advantage, it's considered perfectly acceptable now by the Supreme Court. And you'll see another round of this. So the reality is that voter turnout among Hispanic, Asian, and Black voters in Texas, and of course, as always, the, the working, the white working class and the poor as well, is much, much lower than it is for white middle class and affluent voters. So you have a white middle class to affluent voter majority, and they systematically maintain themselves as a majority through gerrymandering and voter suppression. I'm speaking with the political scientist Clyde Barrow. The relationship between the capitalist class and government is quite complicated. It's not simple one-to-one principal-agent relationship or anything like that. But what is um, the elite basis for this kind of governance? You would think there'd be a, a modern corporate class that would uh, not welcome this uh, the rule by the <laughs> Texas Taliban. But um, yeah, what is the elite base for this kind of politics? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'll describe it like the Texas Republican Party uh, has long been split between what I would call an economic libertarian section and the uh, moral conservative, or I call it the Christo fascist section of the party. The one thing the two wings of the party agree on is free market capitalism, uh, deregulation of business, no corporate or personal income taxation, aggressive tax structure. And so to that degree, both wings of the party cooperate and agree on this sort of free market, laissez-faire, pro-corporate, pro-business economic policy. And to that degree, the business class, the corporate elite gets what they want, and they get it pretty much without even asking for it, realistically. Uh, The question then becomes, what happens when you get all of this other stuff that they've been doing, like voter suppression and anti-abortion laws, the gun law that just recently passed. Some of them have come out against it, but most of them haven't. I hate to compare it, but it's very much like the the early days of, of Hitler in Germany, where this kind of conservative corporate elite will sit back and go, well, you know, uh, we're we're getting what we want. And all this other stuff doesn't really fall on us. It falls on the working class and on ethnic minorities. So we'll just kind of sit here and let it happen. And if it gets out of control, maybe we'll intervene or say something. But of course, 
by the time it's out of control, you know, they're in no position to say anything. It's the Republican Party that's now threatening them. Remember Ted Cruz telling them recently, business people should mind their own business and, and focus on business, not tell us how to run the state or how to run the country. Also keep in mind that a lot of the corporate elite in Texas, especially in, in sectors like the oil, they're the proponents of this ideology. They buy into all of it, all the way to the social measures that involve voter suppression, anti-abortion, evangelical religion. So it is a uniquely conservative, even reactionary corporate elite. You know, it's not uh, Silicon Valley. Now, there was once this uh, independent oil sector in Texas uh, that uh, helped finance LBJ's rise, among other things. What happened to them? Did they just disappear? There's some of that still out there, especially in the fracking industry. But the oil industry in Texas is basically Exxon, Occidental, and Chevron. This kind of freewheeling wildcatters that you saw in the movie series Dallas, those people don't exist to any great extent anymore. Though I would say about that, though, that historically a lot of those people were the ones that in the 1930s through the 1950s pushed this idea of Texas patriotism. I've mentioned too, Clint Murchison, right, the founder of the Dallas Cowboys, and H.L. Hunt, the founder of what became the Kansas City Chiefs. These guys were at the forefront of the anti-Lyndon Johnson campaigns in those days. So the oil barons were not united uh, in their support of LBJ. This uh, abortion ban is just remarkable, breathtaking, horrifying. <laughs> I can string together a whole bunch of adjectives. Um, but when North Carolina uh, had its bathroom bill, uh, when Georgia um, moved uh, for uh, deepening voter suppression, there was some objection uh, from the national corporate class. Major League Baseball moved the All-Star game out of Atlanta. You know, there are all threats that uh, they're going to boycott uh, North Carolina for conventions and such. We haven't heard any of that around Texas. Do you have any theories of why that might be? Well, there's a couple of reasons, I think. One is, if their wife or girlfriend needs an abortion, uh, they can go to New York. It's not really an issue for them. The second is, many of them ideologically are fully supportive of this moral conservative agenda. They're not opposed to it. Uh, in fact, they view it as just another layer of social control and of voter manipulation uh, to keep people basically uh, demobilized. So I don't think you have this kind of progressive corporate elite. Or if you do, they're not saying much. Even on uh, the COVID stuff, you'll notice that American Airlines, which is based in Dallas, in contrast to United, which is based in uh, Chicago, American hasn't imposed any vaccine mandate on their employees because they're terrified that the state may move against them in some way on taxes. Uh, which they've threatened to do. So I think that a large sector of the corporate elite supports these policies. Those that don't, I think, have been intimidated into silence because their economic interests require it. Well, this says something of theoretical interest about the, uh, the autonomy of the state. Well, for a state that claims that it's against government, it's a very powerful and intrusive state. Where did this abortion measure come from? What's the intellectual legislative history of it? Um, it does seem to be quite innovative in the way it uh, constructs the enforcement mechanism. Yeah, I, I don't know the sort of intricate details on how that piece of legislation actually got written, but I can give you some of the political background. Uh, you know, the Republican Party platform in Texas, of course, is just strictly anti-abortion. They want it abolished. In fact, if I can uh, find the thing here, here, this is literally... The second plank in the Republican Party platform of Texas, the sanctity of innocent human life created in the image of God, which should be equally protected from fertilization to natural death. That's as clear as you can get as to what they want. Now, how did they get it? Well, here's what's happened in the last four years. As I mentioned, you know, you had this economic libertarian wing. It was a minority in the Texas House of Representatives for a long time. But what would happen is that the Democrats would vote with the economic libertarian Republicans to elect one of them as Speaker of the House. Basically, liberal Democrats recognized that they were going to get some terrible legislation when it comes to business, social welfare, and education. But at least they could hold off this conservative agenda, which the libertarians opposed in the Republican Party. And they were often called rhinos, right? Republicans in name only. What happened is uh, in the, the last election to the state legislature, 
there was a lot of hope that the Democrats would gain ground. They were only 10 seats away from taking a majority in the House of Representatives. Ted Cruz was in a very close and heated senatorial election. And there was a lot of fear that, that with the Biden campaign that he might take the electoral votes in Texas and those coattails would be sufficient to bring the Democrats into power in the House. So they kind of sat on that in the previous legislative session because they didn't want to inflame Democrats. They knew this would mobilize them to turn out to vote. But in fact, the Democrats lost seats. Ted Cruz won his election. Biden did not carry Texas. So they felt that now was the time that they could do anything they want. Nobody could stop them. And it was time to move. And they did. Uh, and they have systematically passed some of the most extreme right-wing legislation because they knew they could get it done and they decided better do it now while we can. There are some other ulterior motives. You know, we know that Greg Abbott thinks he's going to run for president in the next election, and he's competing against Ron DeSantis in Florida to, to see who can rile up the Trump base the most. He had been lukewarm on much of this legislation three years ago. This time he decided to embrace it and go with it, uh, and they have. And then I think another component of that, as I said, was they saw that they almost lost Texas to Biden because of all these changes in voter turnout that occurred due to COVID, things like 24-hour voting, drive-up voting, people assisting people to vote. And so they just shut all that down in this voter suppression legislation, just to make sure that they suppress the vote. And I'll give you a simple example. In the last election, John Cornyn, uh, who used to portray himself as kind of the moderate senator from Texas, if Hispanics and African-Americans had turned out in the same proportions in that election as whites did, Cornyn would have lost that election by 60,000 votes instead of winning it by 200,000. So it has really become about voter turnout. And the reality is liberals, Democrats, progressives, minorities are not winning that fight in Texas. It's as if they understand fully that uh, they can't win a fair election. That's true. No, it's very clear. No, the Republicans are crystal clear. And in Texas, they make no bones about it. Yeah, they can't win a fair election. If you read some of the local newspaper stories down here, they don't even try to hide it anymore. They're very clear about it. And that's why as the pressure builds on them, they are going to become more aggressive and more flagrant in their willingness to, to violate federal legislation to get there. You know, I, I tell my students all the time that since the end of the Civil War, and I don't just tell them this, I document this through court cases and, and various laws, there is not a single progressive move that has ever occurred in Texas, whether it involves voting rights, civil rights, education funding that has not been imposed on Texas by the federal government. And that's why you saw this delegation from Texas up at the U.S. Congress begging them, please pass the John Lewis Act, because without it, we don't have any leverage against this Texas elite. I see a um, pundit saying that maybe this has just gone too far, there's going to be a backlash, and then add to that this narrative we hear often that uh, Texas is now purple and its demographic changes, increasing urbanization, et cetera, will make it more liberal over time, more democratic over time. That seems like wishful thinking to me, judging from what you've just said. I go back to VOK. That narrative has been around since 1949. People have been saying that was the inevitable course of Texas politics now for 75 years. It hasn't happened. And the reason it hasn't happened is because the Texas establishment is very aware of these demographic trends and they are very knowledgeable and skilled at doing what they need to do to ensure that that demographic majority does not turn into a political majority at the ballot box. It sounds like the only thing that could civilize Texas at this point is uh, the 82nd Airborne or something. <laughs> well, there have been suggestions that, you know, maybe the United States should invade Texas and overthrow the Taliban at home. Is there any um, hope here or should I just uh, surrender to um, a grim interpretation <laughs> well, of events? Yeah, you, you never surrender. The pundits are, are half right in the sense that, yes, the demographics are low. And by the way, let me point out, even the contemporary public opinion polls that have been done in the last couple of weeks show that the vast majority of Texans do not support any of this legislation. 
And by any of it, I mean they don't support the crazy gun law. They don't support the anti-abortion legislation. Uh, they don't support the Voter Suppression Act. So these laws are being passed directly contrary to public opinion, and they know they're passing it directly contrary to public opinion and don't care. Now, that means there is an underlying base, but it is going to be like a salmon swimming upstream. You're going to be fighting against voter suppression legislation as a starter. So it's a tough struggle. Uh, It won't be easy. And I would add to this that the cities have generally gone quite liberal and progressive in terms of the local elections. And the result of that is the Texas legislature has been systematically waging war against the cities for about the last 10 years by stripping them of all kinds of home rule powers and authorities over things like environmental legislation, wage and hour ordinances. So there they're using their centralized control of the state apparatus to strip the cities of their ability to carry out the will of the voters at that level. It's funny, for uh, a formation that is so much in love with states' rights, um, it's... uh... They're all for local control until they're not in control. (laughs) Yes, that seems to be the case. That was Clyde Barrow, a professor of political science at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, and a specialist in state theory. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Every man to his own opinion some of Bionic Rats, a concept that captures the New Yorker's imagination, performed by Lee Scratch Perry, the great reggae artist who died on August 29th. Next, China and Afghanistan. Anatole Lieben, making a return appearance in Behind the News after a seven-year absence, had a short piece on responsible statecraft, the website of the Quincy Institute, arguing, as the title put it, what is drowning Americans in New York, not the Chinese Navy? Climate change is the biggest threat facing humanity, but the foreign policy establishment, a.k.a. the blob, keeps insisting that the real threat is China. And the blob is also insisting that the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan is a disaster of epic proportions when, in fact, the adventure was a 20-year exercise in bloody but pointless imperial vanity. Here to develop these points is Anatole Levin. Levin is a fellow at the Quincy Institute, a think tank devoted to, in its own words, military restraint and diplomatic engagement. It's hard to classify ideologically. It's funded by, among others, George Soros and Charles Koch. Koch, for all his many crimes, is not an enthusiast for imperial war. The Quincy Institute was founded by Andrew Basevich, who's been in this show several times. Basevich is a West Point graduate who spent over 20 years in the Army, became an academic, and is now a writer and think tank president. Anatole Levin spent many years as a journalist covering Afghanistan, Pakistan, Eastern Europe, and the USSR for the Financial Times and the Times. London, that is, not New York. He then moved on into the think tank world. His latest book, Climate Change, the Nation State, was recently published in paperback by Penguin. Anatole Levin. You've got a a piece uh, on the uh, Quincy website uh, about uh, how the Chinese didn't drown anyone in uh, Louisiana or New York City. What do you read the state of U.S.-Chinese relations as now? How much of it is um, like just a search for another Cold War, a search for another enemy? Or um, are there real competing interests between the two countries uh, that uh, really are taking precedence over the need to get together and fight climate change? There are real differing interests, and certainly the Chinese want to be the predominant power in East Asia. There's no question about it. Uh, But the question is whether this is actually more dangerous to the United States and to ordinary Americans than climate change is. And in my view, it simply isn't. Because apart from anything else, the Chinese can reduce American influence. They're bound to do that if they're 
economy continues to grow. That's just a given. But they can't expel America from the Far East uh, unless they are prepared to attack and invade Japan, where America has huge bases and Japan is a strong American ally, uh, to invade and attack South Korea and to invade Guam. And by the way, also to drive the Americans out of Southeast Asia. America will always remain an East Asian power as long as leading East Asian states want America to be there, which they do. By standing pat in its present position, you know, America can remain an East Asian power. But of course, it won't be the only East Asian power. But China, given its history, given its size, given its population, and now given its economic success, is bound to have a major share of power in the world, and especially in East Asia. There's no way of stopping that. We have to learn to live with it in ways that don't threaten either us or peace. It seems that the the underlying reason for American anxieties about China is uh, perception of China as a rising economic and political rival to the United States, perhaps loss of U.S. technological dominance, rising levels of Chinese technological skill. Those are real competitive issues, but they seem to be coming to a head around like the South China Sea. Is that just of symbolic importance? Is there anything real about the South China Sea? Well, as I always say, historians of the future, the way things are going 200 years from now, they are going to regard this as a non-issue because these islands are not going to be, exist. They're, they're not islands, you know, they're reefs and sandbanks. They're going to be underwater again. The Chinese do no particular harm by occupying them. The Chinese are not going to interrupt international trade. It's their trade. And as I say, you know, occupying these reefs in the South China Sea does not mean that the, that the Chinese are in a position to invade Japan. Now, of course, the big question is over Taiwan. But uh, there are ways in which the Americans can arm the Taiwanese to m- make sure that the Chinese would pay a terrible price for invading Taiwan without giving the Chinese the idea that we are going to recognize Taiwanese independence. Because if we do that, it means war. And you know, once there's a war, you don't know who's going to win, quite apart from the shattering damage that it would do to America, China, and the world in general. A friend of mine wrote a dissertation uh, some years ago uh, about uh, British entry into World War One, and he reported that a delegation from the city of London uh, visited uh, the prime minister begging him not to go to war with Germany. There were too many commercial interests at stake. The governor of the Bank of England was in tears at one point in this meeting, which suggests that um, states had their own reasons for doing things. But, you know, on the face of it, it would seem irrational for the U.S. or China to go to war. Uh, there's just... Uh, too much um, economic benefit from the relationship. How do you read this? these competing interests, the political versus the economic? Well, you're absolutely right. Generally, historically, in the end, the political has won, you know, whatever the cost. But China is determined to be a superpower. It already is economically. If America is going to try to prevent that, uh, then there will be war. But the thing is, you see, that contrary to so much of the you know, the the hysterical rhetoric in the West. Uh, Outside the China Sea, uh, the South China Sea, China is not actually acting aggressively. The border conflict with India has been going on for, oh, 60 years now. And it's not at all sure who is actually in the right, if anyone is. America endorsed China's claim to these uninhabited Japanese islands, or what Japan claims, previously, when China was an American ally, America supported the Chinese claim. Elsewhere, China has actually been very cautious. So far, it it would have been so easy for China to take advantage of America's colossal problems in the Middle East over the past 20 years. China has not done so yet. So you you see, it, it would be, I think, a grave mistake to extrapolate from the South China Sea some you know, supposed universal Soviet-style massive threat to America. I mean, what is true, of course, is that the Chinese have established a very harsh but economically very successful model of authoritarian state-led capitalism, um, which is challenging the American model in many parts of the world. But that, of course, is not a military challenge. It's a challenge to our system to do things better. What are the prospects for any kind of meaningful cooperation on climate issues? Well, I think there will be limited cooperation, along with a lot of competition. But 
you know, when it comes to things like sharing technology, I don't see that happening. I mean, but in the end, I mean, the important thing is just that both sides reduce carbon emissions, you know, whether they do it individually or cooperatively is not the main thing. Where things really would get difficult is if we are forced in the last resort, and it would be, I have to be in the last resort, to go in for geoengineering, for example, to actually manipulate the climate. You know, if we fail to limit climate change by other way, means, um, because then, of course, there's the risk that we will get into competitive geoengineering, which has some really frightening um, aspects to it. What would that be? America would try to manipulate the climate to its advantage and China would try to manipulate it to its advantage. If things have got as bad as that, then we may simply be forced People will not be so crazy that they won't see the need for cooperation. And also, um, geoengineering, if it happens, uh, the place to do it is in the Arctic, because that's where the really apocalyptic threats are. And the Arctic is warming faster than anywhere else. Well, it could be that the, the West, America, China and Russia could agree you know, on manipulating the climate of the Arctic, say, for everybody's benefit, if it comes to that. Okay, now let's switch to a, a part of the world that you've spent a lot of time covering and uh, studying, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. What do you think of it broadly to start with? I, I have to say, I agree with Biden in that, you know, if the Afghan setup was so rotten that it collapsed so easily, it was going to collapse sooner or later in any case, whether America was there or not. And there was a risk, of course, that American troops would have found themselves in, in a much bigger mess, you know, having to pull out from Bagram Air, Air Base and substantial number of American troops abandoning huge amounts of equipment after a Taliban victory. Now, that said, of course, now with hindsight, it looks as if it would have made much more sense, for example, to wait until the winter because the Taliban could not have launched this kind of large-scale offensive in the winter. But all that would have bought would have been a few months for a, a slower, um, more measured evacuation. But even so, you know, as soon as people in the Afghan st uh, army and state uh, got the feeling that America was leaving, there was always a very strong likelihood, A, that they would do deals with the Taliban, and B, that others would immediately, of course, panic and head for the airport. I can't easily see a way in which this was ever going to end, except in a, in a very messy and humiliating fashion. Uh, it could have been a bit less messy and a bit less humiliating. But it seems like the blob really didn't want it to end at all. The uh, American military wanted to hang on, above all for cre you know reasons of American credibility, as they call it, or prestige. And a senior American general confessed to me many years ago, 14 years ago now, that that was what it was really about. But as I say, my sense is, you know, having watched the Afghan state over many years, that this was not going to last. It was just too fundamentally rotten and screwed up. Of course, the other thing is that the, the American military, just as it did in South Vietnam, created an Afghan national army, just as it created a South Vietnamese army that could not fight effectively without American air power. Um, and it couldn't manage its own air power. You know, America gave both South Vietnam and Afghanistan, you know, all these planes and helicopters, which they were incapable of flying or maintaining. And the American military, I think, does bear a lot of responsibility for its failure over the years to create, you know, Afghan armed forces that could actually fight. Now, of course, this wasn't entirely their fault. I mean, any more than it was their fault in, in South Vietnam. In, in the end, you have to deal with the forces that you have. Uh, but it seems that, you know, it seems that not just America, I, I totally blame the Europeans and the Brits as well, but that we're, you know, we are incapable of thinking imaginatively in these circumstances. We're just so locked in our way of doing things that we just can't adapt ourselves to somewhere as different as Afghanistan. I'm speaking with the foreign policy analyst, Anatole Levin. Now, you write that the American generals and the foreign policy elite was lying for, for years about what was going on in Afghanistan. What was the nature of these lies? What were they lying about? 
If you read the stuff that's come out in the Afghanistan papers, you have clear evidence of generals saying things about, for example, the condition of the Afghan army and police, which they knew to be false. And this was exposed by the um, special in- investigator for Afghanistan, John Sopko. You know, he, he wrote about this repeatedly, how the reality uh, of the Afghan state and its army was radically different from what the Pentagon was, was telling us. And, you know, I, I've listened myself to American officers giving briefings on the success of the, the Afghan state in its anti-corruption campaign, in, in its anti-narcotics campaign, which, you know, having travelled in Afghanistan, I and others knew to be completely untrue. And it is very difficult not to think that they must have known this as well. If they didn't, they were so totally incompetent that in a way it's even worse. And, you know, you, you also have in the Afghanistan papers, you know, as published in the, um, in the Washington Post, you have these accounts of people like General Doug Lute saying in private way back that, look, the, the only economic success that we've built up in Afghanistan is the success of the heroin trade. Nothing else is, is working other than our aid. So, you know, they, they knew this was not working. But, well, I suppose, I mean, let's be fair to them. They didn't know what else to do. They had no other plan. Maybe there was no other plan. Um, And so they felt compelled to basically tell these fairy stories. I mean, maybe in some cases, they were telling the fairy stories to themselves as well, lying to themselves as much as to the rest of us. Yeah, in these situations, you always wonder about that, where these stories they tell themselves to convince themselves that they're on the right path? Or were these conscious deceptions uh, designed to mislead their higher-ups? There are personal accounts, I've heard them by British officers, you know, of them, British officers training the Afghan army, of them, you know, going to their superior officers and saying, sir, you know, this is just not working. These people are totally corrupt. Half the soldiers don't exist. You know, they're even on paper so their officers can steal their pay. Um, They don't know how to use our weapons. They're constantly deserting. Um, And they were told to shut up, just stay with the program, um, crack on in the British phrase. And also, you see, it is rather amazing how aspects of Vietnam repeated themselves, not just for America, but for Britain as well. You know, the old saying that America wasn't in Vietnam for whatever it was, 10 years. It was in, uh, in Afghanistan once, 10 times over. In other words, you know, that that there was no continuity of command, there was no continuity of intelligence, there was no building up of a cadre of American officers, staff officers, intelligence officers, officials who spoke Vietnamese, for example. Same thing in, in Afghanistan. Basically, you know, junior officers would go to their superiors and say, look, this isn't working. And they were basically told, look, shut up. We're, we, i.e. this unit, this brigade, is going to be out of here in three months anyway. I'm all right, Jack. Let's leave it to the next guy to sort out, you see? And we just want to want it to look good, you know, on our report. So we will report that we have had tremendous success in fighting the Taliban and building up the Afghan National Army. And then the next unit that comes in will say the same. And so you get into a business of, of structural institutionalized lying, just as, you know, with the whole notorious body count in Vietnam. Everybody knew that this was based on fundamental falsehoods, but everyone was trapped into going with the system. What do you expect of a Taliban-ruled Afghanistan? There's a lot of fear it's going to become a base for terrorism worldwide, um, uh, or that the regime is not going to be stable. What do you you see as future? As far as the Taliban are concerned, I am not so worried about them uh, sponsoring or allowing international terrorism, simply because this, not, not because this is a promise that they've made to us, but because they've made this promise to the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese, and the Pakistanis. And if they break that promise, they have basically cut off their trade routes, they have given up any hope of international aid, um, and they've given up any hope of Chinese investment. And they have had Possibly the most astonishing thing about the Taliban victory is, you know, everyone said, oh, this is an overwhelmingly Pashtun force. They won't be able to recruit people from other nationalities. Well, they have. You know, they've recruited a lot of people from other nationalities. But if there hasn't been much more of a resistance to the Taliban, that's also because unlike in the 1990s, uh, the Russians and the Iranians have not backed, you know, have not armed an opposition to the Taliban. So the Taliban have a really big stake in not allowing international terrorism. And also, as uh, 
members of the Taliban, people close to the Taliban I've talked to over the years have said, look, we're, you know, we're not idiots. Um, you know, we had a good thing going before 9-11 and then Al-Qaeda destroyed it for us. We're not going to do that again. But of course, the Taliban aren't the only force in Afghanistan. There is also ISIS and they are determined to continue international terrorism. But then, of course, that gives um, all the people in the region uh, a, a strong um, incentive to back the Taliban in order to crush ISIS. Who are they, This, this uh, the local franchise of ISIS? There are basically three elements of them. One, which is why the Pakistanis are deeply hostile to them, is made up of Pakistani Islamists who were driven across the border into Afghanistan. Um, they rebelled against Pakistan and were defeated and driven into Afghanistan by the Pakistan army. And the founder of ISIS in Afghanistan was actually Pakistan, not Afghan, by citizenship. Um, so there's, that's a big contingent. Uh, then there are uh, a whole range of international fighters, many of them from the former Soviet Union, Chechens, you know, who, who had to escape from Chechnya, Uzbek militants, uh, and then a certain number, we don't have any clear idea how many, of Arab fighters who have been forced to flee from Syria and Iraq and are fetch, fetched up in Afghanistan. So that, and some Uyghurs, which is why the Chinese are so against them. And then the third contingent is defectors from the Taliban. I don't think that the Taliban are very worried about the first two categories, but they are worried about the third, uh, because, of course, if the Taliban do start to make compromises, govern in a more pragmatic or moderate way, then uh, some of their more hardline elements may go over to ISIS. And then, of course, there are all the things you'd expect, uh, battles over the heroin trade. If the Tal- Taliban once again crack down on heroin, there will be defectors for that reason, local tribal clashes, all that kind of thing. Uh, but ISIS is not very big in Afghanistan. But as we've seen, they are capable of carrying out dreadful terrorist attacks. And the US and the Taliban had actually cooperated in some uh, fights against the ISIS, right? Yes, they did. I, I heard that when, when I was last in Afghanistan and traveled to the province of Nangarhar. Um, uh, ISIS was defeated in Nangarhar and driven out by a combination of the Taliban on the ground, the Afghan National Army to some extent on the ground, and American air power. I don't think they actually explicitly coordinated their activity, but in effect, it was a joint victory. So um, there is a certain basis you know, in, in future for cooperation with the Taliban on terrorism. But of course, uh, Taliban internal policy towards women and human rights and so forth, that's a very different matter. That remains very appalling. I mean, the, the idea of a mo- more moderate Taliban wouldn't extend to their um, their gender attitudes, right? No, though, you know, I mean, the thing is, it, what I think we've not acknowledged is that in this, the Taliban are no different from the vast majority of people in the Afghan countryside. The Afghan countryside, especially, of course, the Pashtun countryside, is a very, very conservative place with, frankly, what we regard as terrible attitudes to women. You know, that is not just a Taliban thing. That is most regrettably, a cultural thing in Afghanistan. Now, in the cities, and especially Kabul, it's different. But the the reason why, you know, there was this impression of the Taliban creating something radically new in Afghanistan is when they brought these rural attitudes to Kabul. And so what we have to see this time is whether the Taliban will allow any kind of space in Kabul for a degree of greater liberalism some degree. Uh, The best hope, perhaps, is that, you know, they're going to have to do that if they're going to retain any technocrats, you know, any technically trained people who they will need, uh, apart from anything else, if they're going to um, get Chinese investment in the economy. You know, they will need people who can manage that to some extent. If they drive them all out or kill them uh, or impose such conditions of life on them that they'll you know, they all managed to escape across the border, then, you know, any Taliban hopes of economic growth will go out of the window. And, of course, the other thing from that point of view is to remember, and one hopes the Taliban understand this, but obviously we just don't know, is that, um, you know, when the Taliban took over in um, the mid-90s, you know, Afghanistan was still an overwhelmingly rural society. You know, over the past 20 years, Kabul has grown into a city of more than 4 million people. 
And, you know, those people need jobs. They need to be fed. You can't run them the way that the Taliban ran the villages. And so they are going to need a new way of doing things. But as, as I say, whether they know that or not, we will have to see. And finally, Biden says this is the end of these large nation-building exercises. They are disasters, uh, bloody disasters. Do you believe him? And how durable is this, uh, this concept going to be? That's what everybody said after Vietnam, right? You know, when I came to America in the, still in the 90s, and even you know, despite what was going on in the Balkans, it was an absolute consensus still in the US military. And then Somalia, of course, reinforced that. We don't do nation building. We don't fight counterinsurgencies. You know, we're not going to repeat Vietnam. And they didn't train for it because they decided that after Vietnam, this was never going to happen again. Well, <laughs> it wasn't up to them to decide, right? Al-Qaeda also had a vote, and so did the, you know, the US president. So what will happen in the further future, I don't know. Robert Gates said years ago that any American uh, Secretary of Defense who recommended to a president getting involved in another ground war in Asia would need his head examined. I think there is an overwhelming national consensus now against future wars of choice and actual ground invasions and occupations of countries in order to, well, with an aspect of rebuilding states. After Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya and Somalia before that, I really don't see that happening again. Uh, But, um, of course, uh, there are other options. Um, Without nation building, as has often been said, Obama vastly increased um, the use of American drone attacks against terrorist targets. And now there are more and more robot devices coming on on stream that can be used in this way. Uh, The Israelis are pioneering some of them. So I'm sure that violent action against terrorists or suspected terrorists will continue. Uh, But I don't think it will involve American armies on the ground. That was Anatole Lieben, a former foreign correspondent who is now a fellow at the Quincy Institute. His latest book, Climate Change and the Nation State, is recently out in paperback from Penguin. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, some of Down Here in Babylon, sung by Brent Dowell and produced by Lee Scratch Perry. It's a great song that Jeff Sarge uses as his closing music for his WFMU show, Reggae Schoolroom. Till next week, bye. Oh, yeah. The living is rough, the bowing is tough. Down here in Babylon, they are the truth away from the youth. Down here in Babylon, brothers killing brothers just for fun. Working hard in the burning sun I still feel the chains around my feet And the cry of poverty From people that we meet Try